Hey, this is Kaz, and you are listening to Two Broke Watch Knobs. You have made it all the way to episode 154, and guess what? It's actually one broke watch snob. Unfortunately, my better half in broke watch snobbery, Michael, could not join me for this week's episode. Therefore, you're all stuck with me. I'm sorry in advance. But this is going to be a lot of fun. Michael and I had one. Michael and I had one idea planned for this episode, um, but because he's not feeling well, let's all hope he gets better. Let's all send as many feel better, good intentions and good vibrations towards Michael in Seattle. I'll give everyone two seconds to do that now. One potato. Two potato. All right, and we're back. However, I thought it would be a lot of fun today to talk to you guys about a couple a couple vintage Soviet watches I have my eye on in, uh, for 2020. They're not very well known. Um, sometimes they're kind of hard to find in good condition. Well, one of them definitely is. Um, and so I thought it'd be a lot of fun to talk to you about those pieces, you know, what to expect, what to look for, kind of what makes them interesting, a small bit of history around them. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, actually. I know I, I know, I haven't talked about Soviet watches in a while on air. I, I don't think so. So I thought it'd be fun to do that. However, for episode 154, oh yeah, so I guess what am I going to call? Well, what do we, uh, episode 154, Two Book Watch House Podcast, Kaz is alone, and he's talking about Soviet vintage watches. There's probably a better title that we'll think of in post-production. Um, however, there's a lot of really fun stuff to talk about. Uh, there's some cool news to talk about. There's some cool website updates to talk about. But first, a first, I think maybe in the history of the Two Book Watch Knobs podcast, unless I'm mistaken, and there's another time this happened, but uh, we have to honor tradition on this show. We being you and I, listeners, all you fine folk at home, we have to do an audio wrist check. However, this is, I think, historically the first solo audio wrist check um, I've ever done, or that we've ever done, that TBWS has ever done, but um, this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm wearing something that's pretty interesting, actually, not because of what it is, but because of what it uh, foreshadows. So I am wearing, and this shouldn't be any surprise because I've been wearing this, if you've been on the TBWS Instagram feed, you've been seeing me wear this thing all week. I'm wearing my Orient Star uh, GMT. JDM reference WZ0071DJ. Yes, the only way, only way I can ever remember that reference is that it has 007 in it. WZ0071DJ. Um, this is a cool watch. Obviously, it's part of the Orient Star line, which sort of represents, represents. There you go. Represents their. Um, like a higher tier watch that has like some better quality, better finishes, um, you know, better materials, those types of things. A bit more of a finesse to final product, which obviously means you end up paying for it. I think entry level Orient Star for USD, you can probably get an entry level Orient Star for maybe three hundred bucks, three or four hundred bucks. Um, which in the grand scheme of the whole watch world isn't that much, but in terms of regular Orient, where you can get like a Mako two or a Ray two or an Orient Bambino for anywhere between 100 and 200 bucks, obviously with an Orient, something starting around three or 400 represents something. Um, that's a bit more finessed than that. But yeah, we're in the Orient Star GMT. This is really, really cool. I love this watch. Um, I had a really, really crazy history with this watch. I traded it away, eventually I got it back, this exact watch and everything like that. But I'm, I'm, I'm wearing this today mainly because um, it's heralding uh, a new addition to my collection. Um, I didn't really do too much. I didn't. I don't think. I, I don't think I did any watch purchasing in, t- <laughs> in 2019. I think the last watch I purchased was the Gavox Rhodes in fucking like 2018. <laughs> oh my god. So um, I am going to be adding another Orient Star to the collection. Specifically, it's going to be. Um, one of the recently released Orient Star uh, diver slash sports models. So, um, Orient Star in ooh, August of 2019, super under the radar, obviously, because of a mix of different things. Um, they released uh, a whole bunch of new, really cool divers. We talked about this, I think, ooh, last week or two weeks ago, and there's also a piece on the TBWS website, twobookwashknobs.com. Um, Orient releases three new models. Orient Star releases three new models, or three new, like, Divers or whatever the hell it is. 
Um, there was technically two parts of that release. There's the release that we covered on the site with those three divers. Um, hopefully everyone saw them. If you didn't, go and check them out. They're really cool. And then there was another part, another side of that release in August where Orange Star also put out um, some skeleton sort of semi, no, open heart, open heart sport slash uh, diver models. And they're really cool. They come in a lot of fun colors. Obviously, they have all the regular incredible trademarks that you find with Orient pieces, in-house movement, pretty sure it's sapphire, incredible case finishing, all that stuff. And so I'm in the process now of getting one of the limited edition releases that happened with those um, uh, open heart diver sports um, style watches. And uh, the thing's gorgeous. It's just a bit difficult to get a hold of because obviously these are all JDM. Um, I think technically the ones that the one that I'm getting sold out when it first opened, so um, I'm having to go through a couple interesting hoops to get it. But when I get it, you guys will see it, and it will be super cool. I don't want to say which model specifically because I want it to be a surprise, yay! Um, but I can, yeah, but yeah, I'm 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 gonna be getting that one, and I'm very very excited. It's uh, it's definitely stolen stolen my heart. So depending on the timing, that might be my 2019 purchase, my only <laughs> 2019 purchase, or it'll be my first 2020 purchase. We'll see. But yeah, anyway, for the audio wrist check, I'm wearing this Orient Star uh, GMT, um, and it's going to. It's, I was gonna, I was gonna I was gonna try and talk to my watch on air like, oh, you're gonna get a new brother or sister, Orient Star. GMT. Hope you play nice, but uh, but yeah, I think it's gonna be pretty cool. I'm excited to have um, both of these watches in the collection. Um, it's actually interesting. I'm 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 so we can transition from the wrist check to you know um, website news and urology news and everything like that. Check out the website twobookwatchnobs.com. There's a lot of really fun stuff on there. As always, I think the most recent thing is there's two. Um, there's the Seiko, there's the new Seiko Alpinist re release, so Seiko Alpinist is getting, uh, it was discontinued, now it's getting re-released as part of the Prospects line. I'll get into that in a second, but what's more fun is that there is a two-boke watch knobs um, sort of gift guide, I guess, holiday gift guide. I'm trying to think of a sexier title. I'll have a sexier title live when you guys actually see this thing um, on the site, um, twobokewatchknobs.com. Um, but basically, all of us came together, all the uh, TBWS contributors, our amazing team came together and um, just put together a few uh, lists from each of them from, you know, fun things that could be cool to buy this holidays. Some of them are watch related, some of them are not watch related. I think my one of my favorites is um, Damon Bailey, the wonderful, irreverent, 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 I don't know, uh, Damon Bailey. One of his choices is a Lego gun. Just a one-to-one -one scale replica of a gun made with Legos. Uh, I don't think it shoots projectiles, but it does click. Hold on one second. My cat's eating the wrong food. Hey! Hey! This is a fucking professional show, everyone. Hey! You embarrassed me in front of all these people. God damn it. God damn it. Um, yeah, check out the gift guide. A lot of really, really cool things on there. Um, and then, let me see... Seiko Alpinist. So I'm Michael and I are going to talk about the Seiko Alpinist um, re-release more. Excuse me when uh, when he's back on here. But I wanted to share some of my initial thoughts and just just share some highlights with you. I think we talked about the rumor of this happening uh, last episode or the, or the week before that. Um, however, it's now confirmed. Um, you know, it's it's happening. <laughs> it's it's happening. The Seiko Alpinist is now Alpinist, Alpinist, whatever the fuck. Um, it's getting reimagined for 2020 as part of the Prospects line. There are some changes uh, with the watch. Some are interesting. Some I'm not sure why they did it, and some uh, are pretty upsetting, which I think is I think I, I I think that's probably pretty normal within the watch family. We all get pretty goddamn upset. When things change, especially when you do anything within Seiko. Hold on a second. But basically, what's happening is there are they're adding four new versions, four new versions, um, like Alpinist-inspired uh, uh, watches, 
Um, you can see it on the site. Check it out, twobrokewashknobs.com. Uh, there's a black dial on a bracelet. There's like a cream dial on leather. There's a cream dial um, on it looks like two-stitch like green olive leather or something. Um, not too sure. Uh, and then like, a, like another, like the classic green dial it looks like on that like, like a similar color. Um, leather is the uh, is the original um, alpinist alpinist. Uh, but in terms of specs, what's different? I think the first thing everyone's gonna notice is they put the Prospects X on the on the dial. I remember when I got my Blumo, I didn't really understand. So I got my Blumo, my Seiko Sumo SBDC033 after it was kind of reimagined within Prospects, and the Prospects X was added on the dial. And I remember when I got this watch and when I was like reading about it, everyone was really upset about that. I didn't understand because I didn't experience the Seiko Sumo pre-Prospects X, the SBDC 003, not the 033, which is what I have, the 003. Oof, fucking reference numbers. Um, so I didn't get it. I'm just like, fucking nerds, you guys gotta calm down, man. That's how I talk when I'm not recording. And, um, but I get it. I get it. <laughs> I get it now. I totally 100% get it now. Um, since I experienced the Alpinist, the Seiko Alpinist, before the um, inclusion of the Prospects X, Prospects X, X logo, uh, and now that I'm seeing it after the inclusion of the Prospects X, I uh, I get it. My 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 beard is in full neck beardery, and it's just it just looks wrong. It looks, you know what I mean? I don't know. It it it. I know I'll get over it. I think that's what's important. <laughs> that's the headline. I know I'll get over it, but I. Uh, if, but if I ever gave anyone a hard time for giving for expressing that you didn't like the X logo on the blue mode, I'm just like whatever, dude. I apologize. I now understand. I walked a mile in your shoes, which is disgusting if you like think about it. Um, but I now understand. Other changes include, let me see what Michael wrote here. Michael put together the piece on the site. So I'll go through some of the specs that he's put together here. The last two here are the ones that I'm going to be focusing on. So Seiko Prospect Alpinist specs, 39.5 uh, case diameter, sapphire crystal, new dial options, green, black, champagne, gray, that's kind of cool. Um, stainless steel bracelet or leather straps, 200 meter water resistance. Now these last two are the interesting ones. So very similar to the reimagining of the of the Sumo, uh, these new Alpinists have this new um, uh, kind of version of the 6R15 movement, or I guess updated version of the 6R15 movement. It's the Seiko 6R35 uh, <laughs> movement. I think technically some of the timing specs are different, but I think what most people are talking about um, in regards to this movement is the fact that the, let me double check here, it's the power reserve. Uh, yeah, the new power reserve on these is 70 hours. So the power reserve on the 6R15, which is what my Sumo, my Blumo has, my old, I can say that now, my old Blumo has, that's 6R15, and the power reserve is 50 hours, approximately 50 hours, which I thought was already fantastic. But now on these 6R35s, hold on my cat, sweetie, god damn it. But now on these 6R35s, um, power reserve is 70 hours, which is still cool, I mean, I guess, but it's just like, I don't know, at a certain point, I don't need that many hours. I think it's the similar, similar reaction to what I had on the, um, have you ever guys, have you guys ever seen that, I think it's the Hublot Ferrari, Hublot, Hublot Ferrari watch. Yeah, it says Hublot uh, Ferrari watch, Le Ferrari Super Watch. Um, basically, it's actually pretty ingenious the way the watch is designed. The watch is designed to look like an engine with cylinders and pistons and everything like that. But what they've done is they've made the uh, kind of, I guess, the, 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 the interior cylinder part of the watch. They've stacked mainspring barrels. So within a watch movement, it's this mainspring barrel that holds the mainspring and it's the mainspring that holds the charge so when you're winding if you have a mechanical watch and if you can wind it um 
or if you can't wind it and it has a mechanical rotor in the back. Basically, if you're hand winding it or if the rotor in the back of your watch is spinning, it's basically winding up that, uh, that coil, that spring, the mainspring and the mainspring barrel. And the tighter that spring gets, the more energy it holds. And the more energy it holds, the more, uh, the more hours you can get out of the power reserve because basically what makes the watch run is as the spring uncurls, unfoils, and releases its energy, that energy goes through the actual gear train mechanism of the watch, and then as the energy breaks down, that's when the hands move, and that's how you can basically chart what's happening. I mean, that's basically what a watch is. The, a watch is a visual way you can see the declension of energy. And that's all coming from the mainspring barrel, or in, in the quartz case, the, the quartz crystals and batteries and vibrations. That's a whole different episode. But what the Hublot Ferrari watch has done is they've basically stacked, it looks like one, two, three, three or four mainspring barrels um, on top of each other. So if your power reserve is controlled by the amount of power you can carry in one mainspring barrel, if you can get multiple mainspring barrels in there, that's obviously way more energy. Um, I don't know what, let me see what the actual power reserve on this Ferrari watch is. Power reserve. Blizzard Beach. Blizzard. Sorry, I'm just talking to myself now. Uh, power reserve. No. No. For God's sake. 50 days. Oh my fucking God. No way. It can't be. That's crazy. 50-day power reserve. It is entirely conceivable then that you wind your, for some reason, Hublot LeFerrari Superwatch, and in the course of you winding it to its power depleting after 50 days, you could die. You could get hit by a car or, I don't know, suffer an embolism, something terrible, and your watch will go on. Um, but yeah, so the reason I got super distracted is that there is a certain point where hanging power reserve dong doesn't really do anything for me. Um, I think with the 6R, I'm switching now from Hublot to Seiko. I think with the 6R35, the main thing, um, I think there is some time, like a better timekeeping in there, but the main thing I think they're pushing is the 70 hour power reserve, which to me isn't that big of a deal. Uh, you do get desensitized to it at a certain point. However, I think the reason they're pushing the 70 hour power reserve um, is because of the price of the watch. So the price, of the Seiko Alpinus, uh, the new one, this new Prospects one, you can get the old uh, Seiko Alpinus pre-Prospects, Prospects, however you say it, like three or four hundred bucks, um, which is which is good considering they're asking between seven hundred and twenty-five and seven hundred and fifty bucks for the new Seiko Alpinus. I think at a certain point with features and new inclusions and like. Anything that happens when a watch is reintroduced, you do, as a consumer, reach a point of diminishing returns for what you pay to get in a watch. I would still rather just pay three or four hundred bucks for the old Alpinist, Alpinist um, than paying twice that to get the new one. So I don't know. That's that's why I'm weird about it. And I guess I guess they're also touting the whole different they're all there's now more dial options you can do it on a bracelet which i know some people were always asking for and everything like that so but again you have to ask yourself i really want an alpinist but i don't like the green dial oh cool there's a new one that now has a gray dial however do you want to pay 700 bucks for that so that's a personal decision obviously that we all have to make as consumers i will tell you my choice no i'm not fucking paying that that's ridiculous that's a lot of goddamn donuts you know, my cat's looking at me. Sweetie, you're so good. Um, yeah, let us know your thoughts on that, though. Is anyone, I don't, I've not talked to anyone that's super jazzed uh, about this. Not in the same way as the Sumo. When the Sumo was re-released, people were jazzed about it. Because there was green, and like, yeah, you pay a little bit more, but like, I really want that green, and blah, blah, blah. So we'll see. Um, we'll see how that goes. So let me see here. I have. I actually had to write down the list to you guys. Uh, 154, Casadalone, we did our intro, hello, uh, we did the wrist check, hello, talked about the Seiko Alpinist, talked about the twobookwashknobs.com website, um, talked about the new Orient Star that I'm getting, more details to be released uh, once I get it, I have to jump through a couple hoops to get it, because it's GDM, 
and Orient needs to get their shit together. Uh, one thing I actually am working on the site that I think people are going to really, really dig, I am working on essentially an expanded visual timeline and explanation behind the history of the Seiko Holding Group, which comprises, uh, you know, it used to be three different Seiko companies, now it's just two, but as a Seiko Holding Group, these are all independent companies. Um, Epson is in there, uh, man, Seiko Electronics, and I think Seiko Tech, two of those merged, I think Electronics and Tech merged, and so it's, Teco, it's Electronics and Tech, and now it's Epson. So basically, okay, just to backtrack, working on a history of Seiko Holding Group, in addition to alongside that, the history of Orient, and how those two are related now. Over the past hundred and, ooh, Actually, over the past, yeah, about the past 90 or 100 years, um, those companies have had their own independent histories. Technically, there's still independent histories, but a lot of people think Seiko owns Orient, um, which is not true. Orient was basically an independent company until about 2009, I think, 2009, 2012, when Seiko... Epson bought it. Seiko Epson has nothing to do with Seiko watches. Seiko Epson is basically an offshoot of one of the first couple Seiko watch factories uh, that existed. Um, there's no way I'm going to be able to break down the history right now in front of you guys. It's really, really, it's, it's actually complicated when you go through it piece by piece. The headline is <laughs> that Seiko does not own um, Orient Seiko is owned by Epson, and Epson technically has its own watchmaking history. The reason I'm talking about this is because some of the new Orient Star movements that are uh, Orient Star pieces that are coming out have Epson engraved on the back, which is super interesting. Um, they don't say Orient Watch Group because, like I said, Epson purchased them in uh, 2009 or 2012. I forgot what it was. You know, they don't say they don't say Orient Watch Co. or anything like that. They say Epson. And I was talking with our uh, Orient rep who's based in Europe because I just don't want to talk to the Orient people here in the, U in the USA. And they were saying that it's something that they're going to start doing because Epson has a great watchmaking history and everything like that. So I thought it'd be really cool to actually create a visual timeline to show everyone what the actual relationship is within Seiko Holding Group and within all those three different companies in addition to Orient Watchco and how Orient Watchco integrated or really was purchased and merged into Seiko Holdings Group and what that relationship now looks like. So keep an eye on the site for that. Um, it's actually a lot of fun and that should be pretty cool. But let me see here. Ba -ba 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 -ba. Let's talk about, you guys want to talk about Soviet watches? Hold on, my cat's here. Yang, my love. You want to talk about, she doesn't give a fuck. She doesn't give a shit, dude. She's like, who the fuck are you? The guy that feeds you, keeps you alive. Yeah. Yeah, no, get, get, get no love. Um, there's two, let's talk about Soviet watches. There's two Soviet watches that I think I want to bring into the collection for 2020. Alongside me, um, you guys might recall 2019, you know, one of the big things I was doing were these Stalinistic culture purges of my collection, just getting rid of shit. I didn't need, that's horrible, that's a horrible metaphor. Just getting rid of things. <laughs> <laughs> rid of things i called my watch one by one into the kremlin and they never came out um <laughs> again it's a horrible joke uh for anyone that survived and lived through the soviet union uh one of the things i was doing in 2019 was just really getting rid of watches that i just didn't need in my collection anymore i didn't wear them they had no sentimentality to me anything like that one of the other initiatives that i was really trying to work on and think about but not take too much action on because I had to do all my purchase first, was curating a Soviet watch collection of really, really special pieces, not focused on um, the accumulation, not focused on volume, but focused on a story. Like, what are, what are five or 10 incredible Soviet watches that I could bring into, a vintage Soviet watch that I could bring into the collection that tell an incredible story? Um, Obviously, the Slava Medical, which is one of my Grail watches, is in there. Um, mechanical Soviet Pulse Meter, uh, Raketa Big Zero is in there as well. Um, technically, the Vostok Amphibia is in there, but I don't have. I have some middle age Vostok Amphibias. Middle age being the 80s, early early 80s, I think. 
Um, I want to get an early generation of Bostock and Fubio. And so what I wanted to talk about today was just two watches that I have um, in my sights in 2020 to help me build and curate that really cool story within Soviet watches. So the first one I'm going to talk about, and again, I'm doing a shout out to my boy, Damon Bailey, TBWS contributor. Um, check out his stuff on tubeworkwatchknobs.com. Uh, really, really cool. Really thoughtful like pieces he puts together. I think the latest thing he wrote was um, on Rado. It was the Rado. It was one of the Rado Captain Cook models, and he really dug into like Rado's marketing practices. Uh, it's really, really cool. Really insightful. But um, he DM'd me uh, about a week or so ago and asked me. He's like, "Hey, Kaz." what's the deal with this watch? Is it real? And he sent me a picture and I was like, oh my God, I haven't seen this watch in a long time. So basically the watch that he had asked me about and the watch that I've decided to bring into my Soviet watch collection, um, my curated Soviet watch collection, it's called the Raketa World Time. So the Raketa World Time is really weird. Um, I think a lot of people see it. I think a lot of people are attracted to it, but it, not, it never really got popular. It's not one of the more common commonly known names in um, Soviet watch collecting. It's not like a big zero. It's not like a Vostok Amphibia. It's not like a, you know, Polyot 3133, none of that stuff. So the, the Burketa World Time, it's kind of uh, not forgotten. I think people just don't get super jazzed by it. So the Burketa World Time is interesting. It was created, it was about the 70s. I think years of production were most likely early 70s to about the early, early-ish 80s they were created at a time where in europe i guess people were doing like world time mechanisms where you know you could track different time zones and different cities and things like that so basically what the raketa world time is if you go to ebay and you look one up you'll see i think you'll probably see a bunch um click on one it's basically it looks like a big puck it's a big zero, or not big zero, there you go. It's a big circle, and it has this big bezel. And this big bezel on the outer perimeter has the uh, names of different capitals uh, across the world or Europe, I'm not entirely sure. And basically, the way it works is you turn the bezel in conjunction to what the actual time is on your local time zone, and then where the bezel is, that's supposed to show you what the time is in that city. So if I had my watch set to Moscow and I wanted to see what time it was in fucking, I don't know, Tokyo, I'm assuming, actually Tokyo's probably on here. I would turn the bezel to an appropriate area and then I would, I would be able to see you know, what the time it was in Tokyo in relation to what my time zone was, which is um, Moscow. It's really, really cool. The actual dial itself is very simple. A lot of the times they're just a solid color with some very thin applied metal markers. The hands are also very simple. They're just these bars with like a small strip of usually paint or just some kind of contrasting color. It might have been loom at one time. It's not loom anymore. <laughs> um, and the second hand is also very simple. The movement on here, it's um, it's based off the super prolific uh, caliber that Briquetta is still Still fucking iterating on the 26XX caliber. So my Riketa Big Zero has the 2609, which might be the most basic form of that. And then from that, Riketa was able to build out a lot of really interesting. Um, I don't want to call them complications. Well, not technically they're complications. They're very simple, rudimentary modifications to the 26XX uh, caliber line that serve a function. So in this case, uh, the Riketa World Time has to accommodate this bezel on the outside in addition to a day and a date wheel. Um, all the words are in Cyrillic. If you can find a model where all the words are in Cyrillic, it's just so cool. It's part of one of like the, the, the more interesting things where you can find a really cool world time. So the actual reference in here, it's 26, I'll have to write that. It's a two, a 2628, 2628, 19 joules. Um, it's it's hand, it's manual winding. It's not, it's not automatic, I don't think. I mean, realistically, Soviet movements weren't doing automatic until... Uh, actually, I'll talk about this in my next watch. Just until around the time when the Soviet Union started to collapse. So that's like... Late 80s, super late 80s, beginning of the 90s. Uh, Soviet era, Soviet Union collapsed 91, 92. So a little too late for doing automatic movements. But, um, but the Raketa World Time, it's really cool. The version that I want to find. So I want to find one that's all Cyrillic. I want to find one that's the old Riketa logo, 
um, which is probably closer to the early 70s when the watch started being made. It's kind of like a cursive script looking logo. Uh, if you look at the logo on my Raketa Big Zero, it's like just block, block prints. It's just bold prints. Um, but on this, on the on some of the older Raketa logos, the, the script was a lot more, um, a lot more fluid, a lot more interesting. Um, let me see here. Ba, 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 ba. Things to look out for if you yourself are looking for this watch. Really, it's just the dial, the dial and the hands um, that you want to make sure haven't been replaced or anything like that. The hand is going to be super, super simple. It's actually going to be pretty similar, I believe, to the hand of my Raketa Big Zero in that it's going to look almost like a conductor's baton where one end will be thicker and then as it tapers towards the end, which actually faces the second and minute ticks, it will be thinner um, just because that's a lot of the hand style they used on these two six XX caliber movements because the actual pinions that hold the hands never changed you know anything that changed they just added gears to it so uh, that's really what you're going to want to look out for fake hands it's pretty hard to fake or to franken this case because it has to accommodate this wacky ass bezel um, so you shouldn't have to worry about that but if you're concerned look at the back of the watch the watch basically doesn't have lugs. The watch just looks like um, like a little Debbie cake that someone kind of, I have no idea if those are outside the US. It's like a little snack cake. It's like a, like a cylindrical puck-shaped snack case where uh, to accommodate the spring bars, they just cut out little rectangles you know, from the end. So it's essentially a lugless case. It's kind of similar to the Big Zero, um, but the Big Zero has a bit more motion. It has small lugs, but this thing is just a fucking circle. It's just a, it's just a circle, guys. Okay. Um, interesting quirk about this watch. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of different really fun Raketa movements and Raketa watches that uh, they've tried to build on this uh, 26XX line. So there's this, there's the world time, obviously. There's the 24-hour Arctic dial, which is supposed to help people who are on, like, in the Soviet Union, who are on, like, Arctic missions and everything like that, because obviously the sun doesn't do its hold. 12 hour on 12 hour off thing the closer you get you know, to that, that that pole and everything like that and then there's also the Raketa perpetual calendar um the perpetual calendar Raketa perpetual calendar it's not a perpetual calendar it ends a lot of them ended uh a lot of them are actually ending now I think a lot of them are, they just stop uh they just stop in the 2000s um a very similar and funny kind of quirk happened with the world time. So in order for the bezel to actually help you understand the time in different capitals across the world, um, the Raketa engineers had to do math and figure out, okay, you know, where can we place the cities on the bezel to accommodate this? So if it's set to this time, blah, blah, blah. And they had to do all these calculations and all this math and everything like that. And then they're like, yes, we got it. We did the math. Boom. And they made the watch. Uh, the problem is they didn't account for daylight savings times, daylight savings time in some of the cities. So um, it, it, just, it just doesn't work. The world times, it doesn't work. So if you actually needed a time, uh, if you actually needed a watch that read uh, you know, time zones in different like cities and you wanted to be cool and get something analog, just use your fucking phone, man. Don't, don't buy this Raketa world time to actually use. You buy this thing as a quirk. Um, so it's always kind of interesting, you know, I think when people, when I tell people that, because I've had a few people ask me over the, over the years, you know, about this watch, and I'm like, yeah, it's really cool, blah, blah, blah. By the way, it just doesn't work. Don't try and use it uh, to actually <laughs> actually tell time zones. Um, I don't know if they don't have daylight savings time in Russia or if it's just something that, you know what, they just didn't even think to Google, because I'm sure Google existed in 1971. <laughs> Yeah, interesting quirk about this watch. Um, I want to find a green. There's a. I've seen versions with the green dial, cursive script, gold hands. Um, that's the one I want to find. I want to find a really good example of this. Uh, in terms of price point, I would never pay over a hundred bucks. Um, you can find them sometimes twenty to forty bucks. Those conditions are pretty rough, though. Um, obviously, the nicer condition it goes, it can go kind of higher and higher and everything like that. But uh, safely. You're under a hundred bucks. You're fine. If you just want one, just to have one, you're not too worried about like if these hands are original to this version of the of the Raketa World Time or what. Blah blah blah. You can still pay twenty five to forty five bucks and get something that looks fucking super cool. So 
that's one of the picks um, that I wanted to focus on for 2020. I want to find a really good example of the uh, of the Raketo World Time. So hopefully you guys aren't tired <laughs> of hearing about uh, vintage Sylvia watches because I have another. I have another one that I want to add to the collection for 2020. It's a Vostok. Hold on, I have to drink some water. Oh yeah, water. Um, yeah, oh, that's right. Sorry, I got distracted by my cat. <coughs> so when I say sorry, when I say Vostok, most people think amphibia, and that's totally justified. Vostok amphibia um, is probably one of the cooler fucking things to occur in dive watch history. It's the result of what can happen when people are designing a dive watch in a vacuum. So a lot of what Michael loves about the history of Doxa design in that it doesn't really follow the Submariner sort of style or traditional design cues. Um, the Vostok Amphibia doesn't do the same either for a, a very specific purpose. The Vostok Amphibia, they were designing it in a vacuum because they wanted to design it in a way that they were being self-reliant. you know, self -reliant. I think early models started coming out, early prototype models still make, started coming out in 1967 um, and everything like that, which is, I think after they got the uh, military contract from the Ministry of Defense to make watches based off the original commander ski and everything like that blah 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 i'm getting distracted if you want more vostok history check out our um i actually did an episode holy god i did an episode where i talked the entire time about the vostok amphibia so if you want more history in vostok amphibia go and check that out or you can go and read um we have a write-up on the kistapol watch factory kistapol watch factory is the vostok watch factory we have a write-up on that on the uh, tvws type twobrokewatchknobs.com check that out as well there's some history on the uh amphibia in there but this discussion sorry is not about the Vostok amphibia this discussion is about the not very well known kind of misunderstood very confusing Vostok Neptune now hands up if you've heard of the Vostok Neptune I'm assuming five percent of you maybe less but your hands up the Vostok Neptune is interesting in that if it wasn't for the fall of the Soviet Union, it probably would have been pretty fucking cool. It probably would have been, uh, it probably would have caught fire at a time where watch geeks could have latched onto it and loved it and all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. Um, what's dubbed the Vostok Neptune started coming out in the early to late 80s. I remember the early to late 80s is around the time when things started looking like they're going to be pretty bad for, um, for the Soviet Union. Uh, the reason Soviet watch history is tied so directly to the fall of Soviet Union is because uh, there was communism. The, 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 all the factories were owned by the government. So if the government collapses, the factories collapse. Um, and that's exactly what happened with a lot of these uh, brands. The brands that survive today survived because they were either sold um, after the fall of the like just after the fall of the soviet union or pretty long after uh, the fall of the soviet union vostok's history is interesting in that in order to pay a lot of their workers they started giving out ownership to uh, ownership of vostok in addition to just giving them paying the workers in the watches they were making and uh, very funnily, not, not funny, I mean, it's horrible, but then, you know, a lot of the workers, in order to actually get the money they were, they were owed, had to go on the streets and sell the watches and blah, blah, blah. But eventually, Vostok gave away so many shares and so much ownership rights of Vostok that eventually they didn't own it, the government didn't own it. Uh, I think technically a Lithuanian business owned it, um, and that's how we now have Vostok Europe. Um, yeah, I think you guys can get more history on that. That's all right. I'm talking about the Vostok Neptune. So obviously the Vostok Neptune came out around this time. Um, so it never really caught fire. The Vostok Neptune is essentially an, an offshoot of the Vostok Amphibia. So Vostok Amphibia has different case styles. There's probably 10 or 12 different case styles. Some of the more popular ones are the 420, which I have. Um, the 0070. Uh, there's the 120, and there's a bunch of other ones. This one, um, I don't know what it was originally called, but it is now called the Vostok uh, 960 case style. The Vostok Amphibia 960 case style. The 
interesting interesting thing about this is that the bracelet is integrated into the case. So it's not like you can swap it out and throw it on a NATO or swap it out and throw it on a rubber. You, you can only just use the bracelet. Um, and these bracelets originally were super shitty. The, that was something that the Soviets could never really... The Soviets couldn't ever crack loom and bracelets, <laughs> which is fine. Um, so that's one of the interesting things about the Vostok uh, Neptune is that it was an offshoot of the Vostok Amphibia 960 case. What we started seeing in the mid to late 80s is uh, Vostok putting out a dial that was specific to the 960 case. It's actually very playful and it's very fun and it's almost Raketa-esque. So Vostok, um, Vostok dials were either very simple or towards uh, around this time, they only started featuring like logos and stuff that was emblematic of certain divisions of the Russian military. The scuba dude is a great example. There's also the a paradiver, I think technically. Uh, there's also the ship's wheel dial. Uh, these are all dial variations. Um, there's the red star, which has a tank on it. All these things are very military-esque, and they're, they're, which, is, which makes sense because Vostok was the official watch provider of the U.S. Ministry of Defense, and a lot of other military people had them. They sold them on bases, blah, blah, blah. Um, but when the Neptune came up, the Neptune dial is interesting in that it's more graphically design-inclined than normal. It's almost Raketa-esque. So Raketa had a lot of fun with their dial styles. Their automate their uh, wash manufacturing was automated. They didn't have to worry about any you know military contracts. I think they tried to get a military contract for their Raketa amphibian, which they did not get, which is kind of funny. Because um, when it makes sense, the the, the Vostok amphibian was one hundred percent superior to the Raketa amphibian in all in all ways. Um, so Raketa could play with their dial styles, which is something that's pretty unique to them. Vostok uh, Neptune, I think, is in a similar vein. It's essentially a graphic um, horizon. It's almost like a trick of the eye dial. So there's top to bottom at the top, and this is why I think people call it the um, the Neptune. It looks like a trident. There's like a circle, and there's like, uh, there's the Vostok, there's the Vostok, I'm sorry, Vostok Cyrillic B, which is V, Vostok uh, logo. It's trident, it's almost like a trident sort of crown Poseidon looking thing. And then, um, in stepward motions down from that, you see essentially a sun setting. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six. There's six different stages, six different layers almost. And in each layer, you see this um, semicircle, spherical shape uh, kind of getting slightly smaller and smaller. Like the further down it goes towards six o'clock, you know, it looks like a sun um, setting, which is super interesting, which is something you don't, you, that, that's not really typical for, that sort of playfulness is not typical for um, for Vostok designs after 1965. You did get some fun dials pre-1965 um, before Vostok, which Vostok, when it was still the second Moscow watch factory when they had to flee Moscow during the German invasion, all that bullshit. But that's, but that's World War II to 1965. After 1965, they did not get playful at all until uh, until about the time the uh, the Neptune came in. So integrated bracelet, interesting trident slash crown logo at 12, um, graphic sunset sort of design. Uh, the bezel design is pretty straightforward as well. The case is kind of on the chunkier side almost, but the overall presentation of the watch is really a lot of fun. These things never took off. Um, USSR fell. They made these things from middle of the 80s to the fall of the USSR, and then nothing. USSR fell, and the new owners of Vostok didn't really focus on that. You didn't start seeing new um, Vostok Neptunes until like the 2000s. And those ones were cool, but I want an, an original one. I want one that was part of the, the first wave you know, that came out of, of these in the 80s. And there's a lot of really fun colors. Some of them are also iridescent, which is kind of cool. Again, they're playing with this design. They're getting really interesting with them. Um, iridescent in regards to like the sun setting. So there's, oh man, there's a blue and yellow dial. There's a green and yellow. I want the green and yellow. Um, I think there's a, a very simple black one and everything like that. So... I want to find a really good version of the uh, of this watch. Oh, the other really interesting thing about this watch is, and this is what I was mentioning before when I was talking about the um, 
but you didn't really see automatic movements until the fall of the USSR. This has an automatic movement. I think, I have to double check, but when these things came out, they came out with um, automatic movements. Uh, it's part of the Vostok 2416 um, line, so, you know, this is among the Vostoks that had automatic movements. There were some other ones in the 80s uh, that did as well, but this one is interesting just because it has all these other quirks uh, going for it. It has the standard amphibia hands where it's just the kind of bar slash baton uh, with the tapered tip for the mitten hand and then just like an arrow for the hour hand and then that that, that kind of I don't want to say Breguet-esque but kind of Breguet-esque second hand where it's just a big sort of baton but it has like that um, that circle almost lollipop, but then the baton continues. I'm not doing a very good job of scrapping it. When you Google it, you'll see it. Um, there aren't too many vintage Neptunes uh, available. They get snatched up pretty quickly. The ones that you do see out there will be expensive. If you do want a vintage one, you're gonna pay probably two to 400 bucks, um, which is a shit ton in Soviet watches, but for something that's quite nuanced in the way these uh, Vostok Neptunes are, that's okay. Um, in my opinion, that's okay. You can, if you like the Vostok Neptune case and the cool logo, you can technically get new ones. Uh, so Marinom, which is the official uh, retailer for the Kistapol Watch Factory, which is the Vostok Watch Factory, they do offer new iterations of the Neptune, but they're, they're not as graphically inclined uh, as this, they'll still have the trident, they'll still have some fun colors, but they won't have that kind of um, declining uh, sunset that's on the dial, which for me is part of like like part of the huge charm of this um, of this watch. So those are two Soviet pieces I want to add to my collection to 2020 to kind of help me really tell a fun story, curate an actually interesting collection. Of Soviet watches, you know, it's the uh, Raketa World Time, a good example of the Raketa World Time, and a really good example of the uh, of the Vostok Neptune. It's sort of my intention to not have a collection that celebrates volume, but a collection that celebrates taste. And a lot of the times, taste and volume don't always go together. They can go together, but I guess it really depends on the choices and the nuances the collector that he or she takes. Um, but for me, what made a nuanced collection was not volume, it was uh, a very specific catered selection of, uh, of pieces. And so, already got the Big Zero, already got the Slava Medical. I want to get a super early generation Vostok Amphibia. I'll talk about that on another episode. But I think the big things we're going to focus on are getting a great example of the Vostok Neptune in addition to the uh, Raketa World Time. So, here's what we're going to do. Um, I know we're not at our normal like length. I think we normally do these episodes like an hour, hour and a half. Um, this is going to be a shorter episode. I should have said that in the beginning of the show. My apologies. Just because I don't have my better half in broke watch snobbery here. Uh, but I really hope you had a good time. I really hope it was interesting hearing about some of these Soviet watches. If you want to hear about more, if you guys just want more Soviet watch info, you can let me know. I, I'm happy to talk about this stuff all day. Um, I just know every now and then when I talk about them too much, folks uh, folks let me know. They're just like, hey man, stop talking about Soviet watches. And so I'm like, oh fuck, okay. My my high school anxiety kicks back and it kicks back in. I'm like, oh no, I'm, I'm drooling too much. You know what I mean? Speaking of which, hold on. Ah, sweet nectar. It's just water. Um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, so in terms of an episode recap, episode 154 of the two broke watch snobs slash solo broke watch snob podcast. Kaz is alone and he's talking about two interesting vintage Soviet watches. Um, wearing the Orient Star GMT WZ0071DG for my wrist check in anticipation of the acquisition of a very new and a very cool limited edition Orange Star Diver. Um, the other interesting thing about the Orange Star Diver is that Orange Star doesn't put out divers. Orange Star hasn't done a diver in a long time. So the choice to have these new sport and dive collections come out within the Orange Star line and not reviving a line like the Saturation Divers 
or the M-Force divers with an Orient um, is pretty cool. So that was the other milestone I forgot to mention with the Orient Star divers. Um, yeah, wearing the Orient Star GMT for my wrist check in anticipation of the Orient Star um, diver slash sport model I'm going to be getting. Limited edition can be really, really cool. Keep an eye out for that. Um, also to recap, uh, the new Seiko Alpine, Alp, Alpinist, 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 there we go, bam. <laughs> this is a professional podcast. The new Seiko Alpinist came out. Um, four dial options, leather, uh, bracelet options as well. The new 6R35 movement. I think they're too expensive. Um, I haven't met anyone that's super jazzed about these. I haven't met anyone that's ready to pay 750 donuts to get one of these watches, um, which is the opposite of what happened when they did this very same thing with the um, with the Sumo and technically the, the Cocktail Time. This happened with the Cocktail Time a couple Basels ago. Um, you know? So... If you do, if you are jazzed about the Seiko Alpinist, let us know. Let us know your thoughts on the new release in general. Love it, hate it, indifferent, anything like that. Um, I think it's just great to get a conversation going about this. Uh, also, in terms of the main topic, it was really, really cool to talk to you guys about these two Soviet watches I have on my radar and to share a little bit of their interesting history. These are watches that really aren't on a lot of Soviet watch collectors' I don't know, mines, I'm not sure why. I think because sometimes they're, I think in the case of the Raketa World Time, um, it just might not be interesting or people just might not really understand it or something. But um, I think for me, the coolest thing about it, the coolest thing about the Raketa World Time is the thing that makes it not a very good watch in that the time zones don't work because <laughs> they didn't math it correctly. It's kind of like... Um, uh, rare, when you're a stamp collector, rare stamps are the ones that are misprinted. You know what I mean? I, I think that's what attracts me specifically to uh, want to bring a good example of the Raketa World Time in my collection to help tell that story, help tell that narrative. And then obviously the second choice here of the Vostok Neptune, um, this one is cool for very obvious reasons. Bad timing, really cool watch, outside of Vostok's normal design aesthetic, and there's not too many out there. All of those are incredible, an incredible recipe uh, for something, you know, really fun and collectible. So here, let's do this. Let us know your thoughts on this week's episode, episode 154. Um, oh, I just did the recap. That's right. Uh, let us know your thoughts on the Seiko Alpinist. Michael will be back next week. Fingers crossed. Um, other news that we did want to get to, um, obviously, the new Bond Seamaster. We'll talk about that either in a live stream this week or on the show next week. Obviously, the other huge thing, Casio pulling out of Basel. Again, I want to talk about that with Michael. I don't want you people just to hear me talk about that. Um, I think there's also a new JB Champion bracelet release um, as well. We'll cover those things either in a live stream this week coming up where you guys are listening to this or we'll be talking about that on the uh, episode next week or or, 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 or both. Porco, you know, porque no los dos. Why the fuck not, dude? You know what I mean? Um, just to clarify, I don't know Spanish. That's the only... That's the only Spanish I know, and mi mono está en fuego, which I believe, I was told, my monkey's on fire. On that note, <laughs> I guess I'm doing, I guess it's that sad time, it's that sad time. I'll close the show out solo, um, and solace. Yeah. You have been listening to the Two Boke Watch Snobs. Oh, I know, I, hold on, I fucked it up. I say my name, and then Two Boke Watch there we go, okay. It's that sad, sad time. This is Kaz, and you have been listening to the Two Broke Watch Snobs. Later. Later.